My name is Randy, one of the uh, pastors and one of the teachers here on uh, Sundays. And in our current Sunday morning series, we're highlighting the portion of our church narrative that states Vineyard Church is part of the great family of God, which, as I said last week, at its broadest means that the Vineyard Church is connected to all who share the Christian faith and hold to Jesus Christ to be God's Son and our Lord and Savior. But in a nearer relational sense, Vineyard Church of San Antonio is part of an international family of 1,900 churches in 92 countries and another 500 churches here in the U.S. called the Vineyard Churches. Or I I bumped into one of the books, uh, The Vineyard Church Family. I kind of liked it. And while Catholic and Greek Orthodox might be considered some distant relatives, though relatives, uh, and Protestant churches might be like second or third cousins, our vineyard churches, our vineyard church family, our next of kin. And so to help us become better acquainted with our vineyard church family, we're using this teaching time on Sunday mornings, learning about the core values and practices of the vineyard family. For the last two Sundays, I've played a a 10-minute video of John Wimber, the founder of the Vineyard Churches, describing the process of his conversion. And prior to John's finding Jesus, John was a very, very successful professional musician, but whose life was a wreck. In the last video, John described how he had no knowledge about God, Jesus, or the Bible, but as he and his wife Carol began to seek for God, they found that God was seeking them. At this point in the video, John is describing his first visit to church, and he's at the point of sharing that the pastor had just given an invitation uh, to anyone who felt moved by the sermon to come up to the altar. And uh, we're going to watch this clip, and and I share it. This is the last one of the three, and I share it for two reasons. One, again, for you to get a, a little tiny bit of uh, John Wimber, who Claire and I were so uh, dearly loved by and blessed and helped. Uh, we, we did meet with him a few times on personal basis, but not much. Uh, but secondly, because what, what John's conversion describes is what probably is happening today when those who are unchurched come and visit a church. It is so contrasting to anything they have perhaps ever experienced before. John said... He, he felt that he was much more comfortable in a bar than he did in the church that day. But let's watch this last clip. Anyway, this is dumb. Nobody's going to come. I mean, this is 1963, you know. Nobody's going to come forward there and, and, and go to that altar. The next thing I know, some guy right behind me, about three rows, gets up and walks down the aisle. I watched him. I thought, he got one! I guess he felt the same way because now he really got excited. He started talking faster and faster. And the next, this guy came and stood there, and the next thing I know, this uh, mother and, a, and, her, and her daughter, a teenage daughter, got up from the other side, and they started walking forward, and they were crying. I thought, oh, no. I was so embarrassed. Public display of emotion, you know. I couldn't believe it. They stood there for a few moments, and then the guy said, now we're going to go into the inquiry room. And so I turned, and I said, what's the inquiry room? Dick said, I don't know. I've never been in there. You know? I said, what do they do to him? I don't know. I said, well, what's an inquiry anyway? He says, I don't know, John. I don't know the answer to that. And I said, well, when are they going to let us out? He says, real quick, real quick now. 
So all of a sudden, it was time to go. You know that feeling? I grabbed my kids, and I, I, and I started towards the door, and I'm going as fast as I can go. And as, as I'm going out the door, here comes Dick and Lynn, my friends, and they're coming across the lawn, and Dick waves at me. He said, well, John, how'd you like the church service? I said, oh, man, that's the weirdest thing I've ever seen. That's the strangest. I mean, that's a weird group, man. I mean, why would it? That's weird, man. They're, those people are weird in there. Uh, how often do you have to do this? He said, well, I, he said, I was going to invite you back tonight. I said, you go twice on Sunday? He said, I go every time they open the doors. And his, I could see in his face that his feelings were hurt. I said, you don't like these people, do you? He said, I love them, John. Well, about then, it was just after the Korean War, and they were talking about brainwashing in those days. And I said, man, they've washed your brains. You're, you're going to become one of them. He said, John, I already am. And I said, that's too weird, man. I could never do it. I could never join up with those people. Look how they dress. Look how they talk. Look how they act. Man, they're, they're weird. I can't relate to Father, Father, and all of them. I can't relate to that, man. I can't do it. While I'm saying that, my wife's going, yes, we can. Yes, we can. We can do it. So we get in the car and we argue all the way home. And as I said earlier, that's the tradition. That's what you do coming. That's what you do going. So we get home, and a few days later, uh, uh, we get this phone call, and, and uh, Lynn is saying, will you come to Bible study? I said, what's Bible study? Well, we, we, we all gather in our house, and we drink coffee and eat cookies and talk about the Bible. I said, do you do it very long? And she says, oh, a couple hours. A couple hours. I said, I can't do it, man. All I've got is one night a week off. There's just no way I can do it. She said, what night is it? And I said, well, it's Monday night. I, you know, I, and your group's on Tuesday night, right? Or it was something like that. About an hour later, I get, we get a phone call. Well, it's switched. Switched. You ever been to Bible study? Well, we went. That first night we went, and there was a guy that was, his name was Gunner. And he was a welder, and I figured, well, a welder, he couldn't be too smart. So I'll go. And he was the Bible teacher. And we got there, and it was just Dick and Lynn and my, my wife and I, and this guy named Gunner, and this other guy uh, named Bucky. It was a nice little group. And we sat down, and uh, I, I wasn't going to let this guy put anything over on me, you know. And I said, look, man, before we get started, let me just say in front, I don't believe all this stuff. He said, I understand that. And I said, uh, besides that, I, I don't want to know, I want to know about God. I've been trying to find out about God, and all you guys do is talk about Jesus. And I don't want to talk about Jesus, I want to talk about God. He said, well, that's because you don't understand that Jesus is God. I said, where does it say that? And so he began thumbing through the Bible. And showing me different things in a verse. I mean, I didn't understand most of what he was saying. But he talked and talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And he talked for about a half hour. And uh, when he got all through, I, I sensed that he thought he'd convinced me. And I said, well, that's really interesting. And, and uh, my friend Dick was sitting there, and he suddenly became the interpreter. Now, you've got to understand, I was a musician. And I didn't, understand, I didn't know how to talk Christianese. <laughs> you know what I mean? I mean, that, somebody would say, praise the Lord. Or something. I remember a few weeks after I was there, somebody walked up to me and said, Have you been washed in the blood, brother? I thought, 
I said, when do they make you do that? And so I had a hard time with some of the images, you know, and, and the concepts that they were putting at me. And, and, uh, and so my, my friend Dick, uh, he interpreted for me. This guy would talk a long time, and then Dick would just sort of summarize it, you know, in some, uh, a phrase that made sense to me. Well, that's the way the evening went. After about two or three hours, I was really getting into it. You've got to understand, I was a night person. I was used to be, I, I mean, I was really awake at 11, 12, 1, 2, and 3. That's when I did my best work. And so this guy, you know, he's a welder. He gets up early in the morning. So about 11.30 or so, he's getting... Uh, and I'm saying, well, you can go in a minute, but answer me this. And then I would ask him another question. And then another question. And he kept saying, boy, this guy's hungry. And I said, no, I ate before I came. I'm not hungry. But, but tell me this, you know. Tell me what this means. And tell me what that means. Well, it was the greatest night of my life. I went home so excited I couldn't sleep. You know, I stayed up all night and read the Bible. It was wonderful. I finally had some grasp of some ideas and some concepts. I finally had someone I could talk to. Well, two, it turned out to be Tuesday night. Tuesday night became the focal point of my life. I would wait all week to be there. We would drive up in, into Yorba Linda. We lived down in Fountain Valley area. We would drive up to Yorba Linda about 2 o'clock in the afternoon and just drive around because we thought God lived up there. And we just drive around and talk about it, you know, and read the book and talk and talk and talk about all the things we were learning. We were super excited. Weeks went by. We didn't understand all the issues. I didn't know that the, the, what the Bible was. I didn't know who the Jesus was. I didn't know what he had done. And it took weeks to get the... I mean, you just don't understand. I didn't have any grasp of it. It wasn't simple for me. It was very complex, all of these things. And over a period of weeks, it began to pull together. And finally, I got the idea. Jesus is the Son of God. He died for sins. I, people have sinned. I understood that. It made sense. I didn't think I'd sinned, but I understood that others had. <laughs> and so one night, we're all talking on this thing, and all of a sudden, my wife says, I think it's time to do something about this. And the guy closed his Bible, you know, real clear. And I thought, oh, no. And he says, so do I. And my wife and he are talking. And I'm watching him, and the next thing I know, she's kneeling on the floor and talking to the plaster. And she's saying, oh, God, I'm heartily sorry for my sins. I thought, well, what'd she do? Because she was a good guy, you know. I mean, I knew her. I'd known her real well. I thought she was a pretty good guy, you know. Not as good as I was, but a good guy. And so she's talking, and I'm thinking, this is really strange. You know, she's doing this thing that they've all done. And I, and I said, one, two, three, wait a minute. And I'd been on a few stages in my life, and I knew it was about time for me to do my turn. When she finished, it was my turn. And I was, I sat there and I thought, oh, no. <laughs> They're not going to get, no, I'm not going to do this. And I remember I was sitting there and I was in the captain's chair, and I had a hold of both handles. You know. <laughs> They're not going to drag me out of this chair. You know? And I'm sitting there, and the next thing I know, I'm on my knees. Now, I don't know, to, to save my life, I don't know whether I got out of the chair or was shoved. <laughs> I know theologically that that's very important, but I've never been able to figure it out. <laughs> All I know was the next thing, I was on my knees and I was trying to pray this prayer of repentance they kept talking about. But I couldn't pray. All I could do was go, oh, oh, oh. For hours. 
I, it seemed like hours, at least a half hour. My nose is running. It's all over my chest, you know. My eyes are swelling shut. I'm sobbing. My body is racked with pain. And, I'm, and about 20 minutes into it, I'm realizing that I'm making an utter fool of myself. And I thought, if this doesn't work, I'm going to die. How will I explain this, you know, if this thing doesn't connect? And so the next thing I know, I'm ha I have a, a, a recollection. Years before, I'd gotten in, into a situation where I was out of money, came back to Los Angeles. This is when I was a traveling musician. And I needed some money, and I had a friend that did drugs. And he sold them. He was a connection, and he sold them in Pershing Square, you know, great downtown. If you haven't been there, uh, you missed it. You had to be there. You had to visit it once to understand it. Pershing Square is a notorious park in the center of uh, Los Angeles. And so I went down there to find my friend who I knew would have some money because drug dealers always have money. And I, and I needed some money. I wanted to borrow some money from him. And uh, while I was waiting for him, it was kind of a miserable day, kind of rainy and everything. I was waiting for him to come. And here comes this guy walking along, and he's got one of these signs, like an Eat at Joe's type of sign, you know, front and back. And on the front it said, I am a fool for Christ. And on the back it said, whose fool are you? Well, when I saw it at the time, I thought, oh, weird religious weirdo, you know, he went by. But here I am, all these years later, I'm kneeling on my friend's living room floor, I'm sobbing, I'm suddenly realized that I'm making a complete fool of myself, and I, and I remember that thing. I thought, that's it, that's it. I'm going to be his fool. That's it. And I resolved in my heart at that moment that from that point out, I was going to do the foolish thing in the eyes of the world. I didn't know it was going to be the foolish thing in the eyes of the church, too. <laughs> but I determined that night that if Christ was worth coming to at all, he was worth coming all the way with. And so I got up from there and I met a fool ever since, wherever I could be, in every way that I could. But my heart's intent has always been to be his fool. distinctives of our vineyard family is an emphasis on the primary message of Jesus' teaching, which was the good news of the kingdom of God. And we can see that in numerous places, but a couple. At the beginning of his gospel, Mark said, after John the Baptist had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Matthew echoes a very similar thing, saying, From that time Jesus began to proclaim, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I said last week that the kingdom of God as described by Jesus can be thought of as the sphere where what God wants done is done. A kingdom is where somebody has authority, power over something. And all of us have our little kingdoms. We all have places, realms. Our cars, usually. Uh, my wife doesn't really care for me, you know, kind of take driving her car because I leave crumbs in it because I, I eat things in my car. And anyway, you know that one. A woman's purse, a man's wallet, or his workshop. Anyway, you get the idea. 
So while God's kingdom had always been present throughout the history of humankind, the kingdom of God was now present in a profoundly different way because Jesus, God incarnate, Emmanuel, the divine word, the ultimate revelation of God, the king of kings and lord of lords, God himself had come in human flesh. So the kingdom of God is is not a place, it's a person. It's about the king being present, Emmanuel, God with us. Entering or living in the kingdom of God is essentially the same thing as having and experiencing eternal life now. It's about the abundant life and the with God life. The kingdom of God at its heart is about a loving, interactive relationship with God and one another in our real life now. And it's about a kind of life that's available to us in contrast to the perishing life. Jesus declared in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. So Jesus came as a rescue mission to save humankind. From a kind of life, a life without God, a life that leads to destruction. And we can see that all over the place. Just turn on the news and we can see what the perishing life looks like. We've experienced it ourselves. The kinds of decisions, the paths we've chosen that have led to perishing or to life in abundance. As we, and we know that because Jesus not only talked about the kingdom being near at hand, but everywhere he went, he demonstrated and expressed the kingdom of God, showing its presence and availability by healing, setting people free from the perishing life, restoring them to true life, life with God. Now, early in Jesus' ministry, he read from the Old Testament book of Isaiah, describing the objective of his ministry and of his mission, why he was there, what it was that he was going to do. And he quoted from Isaiah, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the time of God's favor, the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him, and then he said, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled. I am here. God is here to bring life, to restore life. And in these words, Jesus declares war on the kingdom of darkness, saying, I am the one Isaiah spoke of. And the time has come. In and through me, the kingdom of God has come, and everything has changed. So in Jesus... The kingdom of God, the presence and activity of God had come, becoming available in greater measure and effect than at any previous time in human history, perhaps except the Garden of Eden prior to the fall. And that was and still is good news and is a core belief of the vineyard that directs our practice of welcoming and making space for the Holy Spirit to speak, to lead, and act whenever we're together and wherever we are. And we've already seen that today as Becky facilitated a time to allow the Spirit to speak and 
to us. But as profound and significant as the presence of the kingdom is, the nature of the kingdom is also confusing. Recently, I read a booklet on the kingdom of God, which Rich Nathan, a vineyard pastor, writer, and a New Testament theologian, described the confusing nature of the kingdom when he wrote, One of the most challenging questions confronting Christian faith is this. If Jesus really was who he said he was, if he really was the long-awaited Jewish Messiah, then why is the world still in such bad shape? Why do so many people still die of hunger and cancer? Why are there still so many wars and suicide bombings? If Jesus is Lord and he has all power and we have the Holy Spirit and we have this powerful message called the gospel, then why aren't we more successful than we are? Why don't more people get healed when we pray? Why are so many marriages, even among church-going, supposedly Bible-believing Christians, in such bad shape and end in divorce? Why do so many kids raised in Christian families end up barely connected to church? Why are so many church-goers living double lives, hopelessly addicted, unhappy, and unfulfilled? If Jesus is really true and is really risen, why is the truth not more obvious? Why don't more people believe what Christians believe? Why is the world not in better shape if the Messiah really did come? Now, friends, those are legitimate questions that we might wrestle with, or for sure, those perhaps who are outside the church who are not seeing this eternal life, this kingdom abundant life. But that booklet then goes on to answer those questions by describing the nature of the kingdom as Jesus and others in the New Testament understood it. We've already highlighted that Jesus clearly taught and demonstrated that the kingdom of God was present in and through him. But we also read that the kingdom of God was present and active in the early church as described in the book of Acts and the rest of the New Testament. And while it might seem appropriate to say, as some do, that those expressions of the kingdom ended with the apostles, there is substantial historical evidence to the contrary. Rather than those things ending, they continued and they are still happening. However, they're not happening in the fullness that they will yet someday. Even in Jesus' own ministry, while we read cases where he healed them all. There are also cases where the kingdom expression was hindered. One of the clearest examples of this is a time described by Mark when Jesus had gone to his hometown. And it, Mark describes it this way. When Jesus came to his hometown accompanied by his disciples, when the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying, where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom that has been given to him? What amazing miracles he's performed by his hands, referring to other towns around them where Jesus had done miracles. Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense. Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could 
do no miracle there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled at their unbelief. Though some of, the, some of Jesus' listeners were astonished at his teaching and marveled at the miracles he had performed in other towns, Mark tells us he could do no except to lay his hands and heal a few. And then notice what Mark says, that Jesus marveled, was awed, disconcerted, at their unbelief. Jesus, King Jesus, God himself was present, standing before them, and they did not believe. And Jesus could do no miracle. So the issue is, is that the kingdom came, is still here, but it is also not yet. Let me give you some diagrams that were uh, shared with me um, a long time ago that perhaps can help us to grasp this. Let me give you a brief description of how this aspect of the now and the not yet is described by theologians. God is Father, Son, and Spirit existed for all eternity as a community of love. Some length of time, I don't think that quite applies to eternity, but somehow there is a, a season, we imagine, where the Trinity existed as a community of love that could have gone on forever and was going on forever. Then in love, they decided to create the universe, the earth, and humankind. And we see creation coming as a a moment in eternity. Then man and woman chose to live life on their own without God. And we have the fall. A time when they said, nah, I think we'll take care of it ourselves. And look how it turned out. Then in the fall, humankind gave over rule and dominion and delegated this to Satan allowing Satan to establish his kingdom over earth and humankind, or what was called this evil age. And that is what we have been living in. That is a part of the age that we are in. And Satan has dominion. He has power. And people choose to live the way they want to choose. Throughout the Old Testament, however, there are descriptions of a future time when God's rule would be established again. God's kingdom, the age to come. And as a part of that, there is this end of the age. Now something very unexpected happened, though referenced in the Old Testament. Messiah came establishing his kingdom, but not fully, a time when God's age to come breaks into this evil age. And as a result, we now live as Christ's followers in this in-between time where God's age to come has broken in while this evil age continues. 
Now, it was a description that was used to sort of describe this is D-Day back in World War II. We're told by historians that the, the force that came onto that beach in D-Day and the force that then went forward towards uh, Germany, that essentially the war was won. And that what was left was a, a mop-up. Now, a whole lot of people die in that mop-up. But this idea that the war was still going on, yet the victors were on their way. The Apostle Paul describes this now and not yet of the kingdom in 1 Corinthians 15. And the context is Paul is dealing with is an erroneous teaching that there is no resurrection of the dead. That this life is all there is. Ever heard that one? That was taught by the Jewish Sadducees. And has continued to this day to be taught by many. But Paul ends his statements describing this now and not yet nature of the kingdom. Listen to these words. In fact, coming kind of in the middle of a thought, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have died. For since death came through a human being, the resurrection of the dead has also come through a human being. For as all die in Adam, so all will be made alive in Christ, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father, after he has destroyed every ruler and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Now I'm going to propose something to you that... that is not very described in this text. But I'm going to suggest that that in-between, that which is happening since he was raised from the dead and is in heaven, that is in-between his coming again, and that the destruction of every ruler and every authority and every power has been left to us, the church. Jesus said, wait in Jerusalem for the power of the Spirit, the gift and promise of the Spirit. And he commissioned his disciples, now go and do what I've done and teach them about. At some level, the reason why the world is still such a mess is that we have not taken our place. We are waiting till we die and get to go to heaven. We got our ticket to ride, and now I'm good. And we live our lives with both the abundant life and the perishing life. And the abundant life and the perishing life. And what God is wanting is a people. He's always wanted a people who would take his kingdom to bear upon the world and the world's people. And he said that our weapon is love. By this they will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. 
Why is it that we can become so offended and hurt by one another and not know that we're called to love? Why is it that that people just come to one church after another church after another church, trying to find the perfect church? There is no perfect church. How about we stay at one and try and figure out how to be a whole and complete church family together? Friends, we have a job to do. We're not just supposed to come sit on Sunday mornings and go to work during the week and come back on Sunday mornings or go to a midweek community group or something. Friends, we have a job to do, and it's called to love the world to Christ. He's left us with the task. Go and make disciples, teaching them to do everything I have taught you. Go and make disciples, baptizing them bringing them into the church, training them to do everything I've taught you to do. So let's all go do it. And that's what we have been attempting to somewhat sort of facilitate is that the Holy Spirit's presence in our lives is the empowerment that helps us have the tools, the the power, the ministry to effect change, to care for the world, to see healing. I mean, think about Jesus' model for evangelism. What was it? Love, specifically, a whole lot of healing and teaching. Scripture says that he preached in the synagogues, he taught in their uh, in their um, in the streets, and then he healed the sick. And that's what we. So this becomes a training place. This and our our community groups are a place to learn how to actually love God. Love ourselves, love one another, and love this world that he so loves, that he sent his only son. It's, it's noon, um, or five minutes till um, service went a little unique today. Um, but I, just, I, I, I want to um, give at least a moment uh, for the Holy Spirit. Um, earlier there were a couple of, of uh, prophetic words, a, couple, a word of encouragement, uh, and I, I would like to just give space, a couple minutes, uh, to wait, as Becky referenced, uh, and to invite him if he would speak or if even someone would have interest to, sh- to share a response uh, of what you sense God is saying to you personally. So Holy Spirit, come. Come Holy Spirit. And by that we, what we're saying Holy Spirit is is yes, have your way. Come and affect us. Come and speak. Come and heal, come and mend. Come and empower. Come and convince. Well, Randy was teaching from uh, Mark 6, 
um, he talked about how they were offended by who the vehicle that was being used because they knew him and, you know, they knew him as a kid. And um, then that offense blocked them from being able to experience God. And, you know, I don't think this is uh, good language grammar, so Beth, excuse me. But think about it. The word offense in there has the word fence. And I believe that when we are offended, we build a fence around us that does not allow, hopefully, the bad stuff to come in. But we're also not aware that we're not allowing the good to come in. And that was what happened to those folks. They were offended by Jesus, by who he was and, you know, who do you think he is, whatever. They were offended, and they built a fence, and not only did they block out what they thought could harm them or didn't line up with their theology or lined up with how they wanted it to look, but it blocked them from getting the good. And so if you are um, offended, whether you're offended by Jesus or offended by the service or offended by your neighbor or offended by someone here or offended from the past, it is blocking the good that could come to you. And Jesus is like, I, I'm, I'm not being judgmental here. I'm not being with the finger. What I'm here is saying that Jesus is saying, kid, would you just invite me to build, take down that fence? That, that's all I'm asking. And I think that's all the Spirit is asking. Just invite me, Holy Spirit. I do have a fence toward my boss, my neighbor, my pastor, this person, whatever it is. I do have a fence, and I thought it was to protect me. But, Lord, is it? blocking your goodness from coming to me and just ask him holy spirit and i just ask you know just be in this place holy spirit would you remove my offense would you remove that fence now so that whatever good you do want to bring to me whether it's forgiveness or changing the way i've been thinking can come to me Holy Spirit, would you send us forth this morning as your ambassadors? Those who have chosen to be followers and apprentices of Jesus. And would you be with us and teach us and show us what you're doing in the world around us, at our workplaces? homes, on our streets, on our highways, that our world would be different because Christ is in us, the Spirit of God empowering us to love and to so love that it turns heads. Equip us, be with us to do what we cannot do on our own, and you are not asking us to do on our own. Send us forth as your ambassadors, as your lovers of those you love. In Jesus' name, let it be so. 
still want to make space for uh, if any of you would like to receive prayer. There was some sense, like the message John was saying, the pastor said, if anything here from this touched you and you would like to come forward to the altar, uh, we would be happy to have some folks up here to pray with you and to uh, be a part of your journey uh, in any way that that could be helped to you. We'd love to do that. Otherwise, have a great week, and we'll see you next Sunday.